Uh, Today's reading is from the book of Micah, uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 1, which you'll find on page 933 uh, of the Pew Bibles. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. And I'm very grateful to Colin that he enunciated how to say Happy Gaudete Sunday. You would have got Gaudet from me, so Happy Gaudete Sunday. And I am now going to attempt to explain Gaudete Sunday in the shortest and simplest of stories. Charlie Wakefield, Darren Alford and myself were putting up the Follow the Star banner that you will see on the wall at Memorial Green. And as we were deciding whether it was two inches to the left or four inches to the right, the lovely Sarah Pickering came round the corner on her bicycle, and as she shot past, she said, Yippee! Christmas is coming! (laughs) There you are. Gordette Sunday by Sarah Pickering. (laughs) And that's Advent. So I would ask you just to hold on to that yippee of Sarah's in your mind for a while. Now my father only ever used to order starters, or as he put them, horsers d'oeuvres, <laughs> and never a main course, because he always said main courses were disappointing. He was an Advent kind of person. Endless prawn cocktails, salted peanuts and white bait, and not a roast turkey in sight. He loved the appetizers, designed to whet the appetite 
and heighten the senses before the main event, but he didn't want the main event. So I will let you enjoy all the significance of that analogy without ramming it down your throat. However, knowing that something truly marvellous, truly wonderful is coming, can give us joy today, now. A friend of ours, Emma, her daughter moved to Australia, and she hasn't seen her for almost a year, and her daughter is coming to spend Christmas with them. And she is joyful now in anticipation because her daughter is coming, even though she has not yet arrived. So do we feel like that about Christmas or the coming of Jesus Christ? There seems to be two thoughts. Firstly, Advent, groan. I feel tired before it's even begun. So for those of you who are at our Advent meditation, the very first poem we heard on Tuesday night begins with, Dear Lord, I feel tired before it's even started. And in fact, somebody, and I won't mention their name, I spoke to this morning as I arrived at church, and they described the nightmare they were having with delivery drivers um, not delivering on time and throwing flowers over into a neighbour's garden. And she said to me, there's a clue, it's a she. (laughs) And she said to me, I can't deal with Christmas, I'm too old. Well, she's not too old. But what I would say was, if you're caught up, let me ask, if it's not Sarah's yippee for you, and you are caught up in the busyness and business of Christmas, then are you trapped in the trappings of Christmas? Now, unlike my father's view of main courses, Christ's coming was so much better than could have hoped for. Now, how often does that happen? Normally, we get a very long run-up for a short jump. In fairness, I think the Conservatives probably got more than they hoped for, but it is a rarity that that happens. So, interestingly, was the long-awaited Messiah the gift that people in Micah's time would have been hoping for? Because the Messiah was definitely hoped for, but to do what exactly? Now, Micah and some Old Testament passages seem to be pretty clear on this, but it is hard to read them without understanding the context of the time. So, if you'll allow me, I'll just set the scene for you. He lived, Micah lived about 750 years before Christ and was a minor prophet from the village or a village in Judah. I always think that's rather unfair. He probably considered himself a major prophet, but we have him down as a minor prophet. Now, after a long period of peace, Israel, Judah, and the other nations in the region came under increasing pressure and attack from the very aggressive and rapidly expanding new Assyrian empire. 
the then king of Assyria called Tiglath-Pilsa III, who does sound like an American politician, (laughs) conducted almost annual military campaigns in the area, claiming under their authority the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Now, in his book, Micah reproaches unjust leaders, defends the right of the poor against the rich and powerful, while looking forward to a world at peace centred on Zion under the leadership of the new Davidic monarch, the promised ruler from Bethlehem, exactly the reading we've just heard. So, Micah and his fellow Jews lived under tyranny and sustained constant attack. Back to my question. What was the hope that the long-for Messiah was going to do? Given the backdrop of the time, is it any surprise that the hopeful Messiah would take the following guys? Verses 8 and 9, the last two. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. So I'm going to be flippant for effect. I'm going to transport myself back into Micah's time. And they may have prayed something like this. Dear God, please come and take control. With mighty grandeur and power, smash my enemies who are tyrants, greedy and immoral, and impose peace on our troubled land. And God responded albeit 700 years later, like this. Even better, I'm going to send my son to love people like they have never been loved before, to forgive people like they have never been forgiven before, and to welcome all peoples into our kingdom like they have never been welcomed before. Back to Micah's time. What? That's not what we ordered. That's not the justice we understand. That's just simply disappointing. Yet, and I have to do this, I was meant to preach two weeks ago on Isaiah, and in typical biblical contrast, the passage I had then offers us a different description of the same coming Messiah. You might remember this, or you probably will. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. So at a similar period of history, two descriptions. Is it hard not to think, are they talking about the same Messiah? But interestingly, they both talk about the Messiah bringing peace. So when we consider Christmas and what the baby Jesus means to us personally, have we considered 
why he came and not just that he came. The enormity of the gift he brought, God incarnate on earth in the form of a baby human to reconcile us with God our Father for all mankind and for all eternity. Or have we dulled this down to something like Christmas is a time where we remember the birth of Christ. The magnificence of the reason he came and the mystery, the wonder of how it is possible that God came in human form is simply too much for some. Now, many of you know that as I go about the course of my daily working life, I come into contact with lots of people and I always enjoy a good discussion about Jesus and spirituality and other faiths. It normally begins with the famous my wife's a priest line. Well, I had a recent encounter and a very thought-provoking encounter with two gentlemen, two charming gentlemen, um, at an Islamic pop-up stall in Leicester Square. If you go there, you can talk to them also. We started talking about Christ and Christmas, and they gave me some reading. So this is a pamphlet that they gave me. Jesus, a prophet of God, and underneath it says, Muslims love Jesus. So, in the light of the enormity of that gift that Jesus brought, let me just read you some of the questions they have, and they have for us, and they have for themselves. So, Jesus as God is how it begins. Some Christians claim that Jesus is God or part of a trinity, that he is the incarnation of God on earth and that God took on human form. However, according to the Bible, Jesus was born, ate, slept, prayed and had limited knowledge. All attributes not befitting God. God has attributes of perfection, whereas man is the opposite. How can anything be two complete opposites simultaneously? Islam teaches that God is always perfect. To believe that God became a man is to claim that God is or was at some point in time imperfect. A Christian must ask him herself, does the idea of a God who was once a weak, helpless child, one who could not survive without food, drink or sleep, be the same almighty God described in the Old Testament? Surely not. Could Jesus be the same from the Old Testament, lion, mauling and mangling, lifted in triumph over enemies and destroying all foes? But his sovereignty was never dependent, I would suggest, upon our definitions of grandeur. He certainly wouldn't have been born in a stable in a nowhere place like Bethlehem, for a start. I would suggest that his lowly birth, his humility, his nature as servant king, 
is exactly why he was able and is able to reconcile us with our Father God. Glory out of humility is part of the mystery of Christmas. Let me put it like this. I woke up thinking this. Would anything Jesus ever said or did make any sense if he sat on a throne surrounded by gold and servants? Surely not. So as we reflect on the joy that Christmas can bring, let us also think why we have that joy and delight in the mystery. Because if we could earn enough treasure in heaven to qualify for entry, would we even need Jesus? If our good deeds were ever going to be enough to gain entry, then would Jesus be needed to create that new covenant between God and us to pour abundant grace upon all mankind and facilitate entry for all? So back to my friends and their questions. They say, Islam teaches that God is the all-just and all-merciful and does not need to sacrifice himself to forgive sins, nor is anyone born into sin. God judges everyone based on their own deeds and everyone is accountable for their own actions. Thought-provoking. I believe Christ came because we could, can, and never do enough to earn entry into the kingdom of God. How fabulous is that? Is this not what differentiates the beliefs of Christians from many others? So, on this Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of Joy, Perhaps we might consider what it is about Jesus' coming that makes us joyful. When, like Sarah, we shout, yippee, either out loud or in our hearts, which is much more British, (laughs) what is at the heart of that yippee? Let us pray. Father God, let not our lack of understanding hinder us from a loving relationship with you. Let not the trappings of Christmas disguise the wonder of the gift that Jesus brought. And let not our obsession with ourselves obscure the joy that is to be found in doing your will. In Jesus' name. Amen.